He said all of this quite openly. That's how Mark describes Jesus' willingness to speak of his impending rejection and crucifixion. He talked about it all quite openly, Mark says. As if he didn't know that he should be ashamed of such things. Well, Peter certainly knew how shameful such things were. And so Peter, according to Mark, makes certain that Jesus knows how shameful such things are. Yes, Peter pulls Jesus aside, you know, so that others won't hear such an embarrassing public exchange. And Peter begins to explain to Jesus that people like winners, not losers. People like power, not weakness. What Peter then found out the hard way was that Jesus understood all of this perfectly well. It's just that Jesus was operating out of an entirely different script out of an altogether different reality. And thus, pulling Peter back in front of everyone, taking their conversation back out into public, as it were, Jesus now responds to Peter by saying the quiet part out loud. He says, Any who want to follow me must take up their own crosses, must prepare themselves for rejection and for hardship. And those who are ashamed of this, well... Of them, he says, I will be ashamed when I come again in glory. Oh, if ever there were a passage from the gospel that it would be desirable for us to cut out, this one is probably it. Because those who are ashamed of the gospel, as Jesus means it, are not typically those whom we think such words refer to. In other words, those who find the gospel story foolish and unbelievable. Instead, those who are ashamed of the gospel are those of us who do believe the story, but who nonetheless find it repugnant to think that as Jesus followers, we might ever have to lose. I've done this thought experiment before on a Wednesday night at a prayer meeting, but I find it so colorful and so provocative that I'd like to do it again here in a sermon, so go with me. I want us to imagine that a big-name college football coach has just retired and that the university is just now announcing his replacement. To make this thought experiment contemporaneous, let's say it's the University of Alabama. And let's say that upon Nick Saban's retirement, the Crimson Tide have just announced that they're leaning towards Kalen DeBoer as their new head coach. Now let's say that the contract has not yet been signed, but that the press conference where DeBoer is being announced is nonetheless just getting underway. Obviously, it wouldn't work this way, but just go with me here. So there DeBoer is, flanked by the university president on one side and the athletic director on the other, a bunch of big cursive A's and red elephants emblazoned on the wall behind them. And let's say that there are dozens of video cameras trained on these men and that millions of folks are watching the press conference live at home. And let's say that the first question for DeBoer comes from ESPN the magazine. And let's say that the question is, hey, coach, Lots of people have really high hopes for you in this new opportunity. 
How do you think y'all are going to fare next season? And let's say that DeBoer hears this and then leans forward into the microphone and says, Oh, it's going to be a great season. It's going to be an amazing season. These guys are really going to learn to love one another hard. I mean, these guys are going to become like a band of brothers, serving one another, looking out for one another. Heck, down the line, a lot of these guys are going to end up being in one another's weddings. And let's say that this elicits an awkward chuckle from those looking on, particularly from the president and the athletic director who are sitting there just beside him. And it's silent because he appears to be finished with his answer. And then our imaginary reporter goes on, yes, but the games. How do you think the team is going to do next season in the games? To which, let's imagine DeBoer responding, oh, that. Oh, horribly. Horrible, just absolutely abysmally. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to go like 2 and 10. Maybe 3 and 9 if we catch a few breaks. But I'm telling you, these guys are really going to learn to love one another. Just you wait and see how close this team will be when the season ends. Now, can you imagine what that AD would do in this moment? All of those people looking on. With this potential new coach talking so openly about how ineffectual his team is going to be, about how much losing they're going to do. Do you think this AD is still going to offer him this as yet unsigned contract if he keeps talking this way? You think Alabama Nation's going to get on board with any of this? I guess the rest of the country would probably get on board with it. Yeah, we can almost see that AD now cupping his hand over the microphones and pulling DeBoer close and saying, what are you doing, man? You know we're not calling you here to lose games. We're calling you here to win. If you want to be this team's coach, if you want people to follow you, if you want to be a real leader, you better cut it out right now with all this mushy love stuff, all this talk about losing, because people want power. People want strength, man. People here want to win. Yes, Jesus, Mark says, spoke these things quite openly. And Peter was ashamed by it. But Jesus then turned the tables on Peter's shame, saying that those who were ashamed of him and of his way, ashamed of appearing weak, ashamed of ultimately losing for righteousness' sake, Jesus says that those who are ashamed by such things are those of whom he will be ashamed when he returns again in glory. And so I say again, would that we could just cut this passage of the gospel right out. Because far too often those of whom Jesus speaks here are us. At least me. I read a fascinating psychological study once that found that as sports fans, we do a peculiar thing with our pronouns when it comes to our favorite teams winning and losing. When our favorite teams win, we are prone to saying, we won. But when our favorite team loses, we are equally prone to saying, they lost. 
We won. They lost. It's fascinating. And it shines a light on how much we naturally want to identify ourselves with winners and distance ourselves from losers. With how drawn we are to power and glory and prestige and might, and how repugnant we find anything that smacks of weakness and struggle and pacifism and gentleness. But here in this second week in Lent, we are brought face to face by the Revised Common Lectionary with this central aspect of Jesus' life and teaching. Because here, right in the middle of Mark's Gospel, Jesus spells out that His way stands in contradistinction to our own preferred ways. When you want me to be abrasive, Jesus effectively says here, I am going to be gentle. When you want me to be dominant, I am going to be peaceable. When you want me to take advantage of my power, I am going to surrender it willingly. When you want me to take no captives, I am going to set the captives free. Yes, he says all of this quite openly. Thus, it's a marvel of human psychology that we could have ever taken from the Jesus story that which we have all too readily as Christians taken from it. Which is that here is a way to buttress our power and our glory and our might in the world. That here is a way to ensure greater wealth or privilege or comfort or status in this world. That here in Jesus is somehow a way of underwriting our own personal or social or political power in this world. Yes, that we could have read and absorbed the Jesus story. The story of the one who was crucified by the Roman authorities and died. And somehow come to think that his is the way to such grand things. Well, it almost boggles the mind when you really think about it. Because Jesus says very clearly that his way will not lead to such things. That his way will instead lead to hardship and to the cross. And then, surprise of all surprises, it does. And then when it does, his disciples all run in shame, lest it appear that they lost. Oh, they didn't lose. He lost. I'm telling you, Peter said, I don't know this man. I got nothing to do with him. Yes, that we as Christians have found a way of fashioning a theology of glory out of what is really the scandal of the cross is nothing short of psychologically remarkable. But we have. And thus, this Lenten season, it is important that we recognize we have, that we repent of it, and that we commit ourselves to trying to more closely follow the way of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we seek out rejection or marginalization or poverty or shame. Of course not. But it does mean that we must stop assuming that the mark of being faithful and true to Christ Jesus 
are blessings that redound in the form of the kingdom and the power and the glory. No, as Jesus himself prayed, God's are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus's, meanwhile, are those who take up their crosses and follow him. On this second Sunday in Lent, dear family, with Easter Sunday still so very, very far away, might we relearn how to identify ourselves with the carpenter from Nazareth, not just the Savior risen from the sealed tomb. For let us remember, here on this side of the coming resurrection, it is this rejected Nazarene whom we are called to follow and to emulate and to give our lives to and if called upon to give our lives for. Yes, on Easter Sunday, we were indeed redeemed and sealed for eternal life. But before that, on Good Friday, we were likewise crucified right there with Christ Jesus. In other words, not just we for the Easter win and him for the Friday loss. Instead, we in Christ, the cross first, then the resurrection. Let us not be surprised or amazed by any of this. For Jesus said all of this quite openly. Those who are ashamed by it are those who fail to understand the cost of resurrection. Let us be among those who not only understand but who count the cost. And let us therefore be those who take up our crosses and follow him. And all God's people said.